0: Please open up your Bibles to uh, the New Testament epistle, James, and we'll be looking at James chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4. My sermon title this morning is uh, Passing the Test, Passing the Test. Let me pray for our time ahead. Heavenly Father, I pray that our message time would be fruitful as we open up your perfect word. Lord, I just uh, very humbly come before you and pray that this would be your message to each person assembled here And uh, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, that hearts would be soft and open to receiving the incredible truth here, the timeless truth here, the revelation of truth here. Lord, uh, this message is lifted up to you as an act of love and obedience and worship, personally and corporately, and I I pray that, uh, Lord, I would just get out of the way, that you would just speak this morning, and uh, I would neither add to nor take anything away from your perfect truth for us. Lord, um, I uh, am, am amazed at uh, how relevant your word is uh, in the times we're in, and I pray this would speak to everyone in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, um, let me just start with the Scripture, uh, perfect place to start. I'm going to start with uh, verse 1 in James, chapter 1. I'll be reading from the ESV. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, we all want to pass tests, right? We all want to pass tests. Um, You know, if you're facing some kind of a qualifying exam or, you know, in my previous life as a pilot, a check ride, you know, there's a preparation phase and there's anxiety and there's buildup that comes with uh, passing a test. And, you know, as we enter the month of August, uh, kids are thinking about going back to school and we've got our seminary cranking back up. So testing is on people's mind, I think. I was uh, academically tested on a book that I had to read in college, which is uh, now a long time ago, <laughs> 40 years ago, and um, you know I can't recall how I did on that particular exam, that particular test over the content of the book, but I do know that the message of that book impacted me greatly at the time. The author of the book was a college professor, and he was, his name was Ernest Becker, uh, and he won a Pulitzer Prize for this book. Published in 1974, and the title of the book was The Denial of Death. The Denial of Death. I read this book as a very impressionable undergraduate, and uh, this was back in 1978. And, um, you know, I really had no Bible knowledge at that time, I, I just didn't know what was in Scripture. And so here was uh, a class I was taking at a reputable university, and here comes this book that's won a Pulitzer Prize, and why shouldn't I take it as, like, this is the gospel, at least according to man. Um, And so Dr. Becker was an unapologetic atheist intellectual, and uh, he had much to say about the fate of man, about the fate of man, and he expressed his ideas in brilliant prose. That's why he won a Pulitzer Prize, because he he could write. He had an incredible gift for putting words on paper and expressing thoughts, and his, his ideas, you know, were, were just brilliantly laid out, but they were also terribly depressing, terribly depressing. And uh, in Becker's understanding, using some of his words, paraphrasing, the problem with humanity is that we sit, we, humanity, sit tragically alone at the top of the evolutionary food chain. And as we do so, we're pondering... The dilemma of being godlike in abilities but no better off than bugs or plants in terms of knowing any meaning beyond this temporal life. Here is Professor Becker's exact words here. It's his, his distressing take on what he calls the dilemma of humankind. And I'm quoting, this is the paradox. He, man, is out of nature and hopelessly in it. He is dual up in the stars and yet housed in a heart-pumping, breath-gasping body that once belonged to a fish and still carries the gill marks to prove it. His body is a material, fleshy casing that is alien to him in many ways, the strangest and most repugnant way being that it aches and bleeds and will decay and die. Man is literally split in two. He has an awareness of his own splendid uniqueness in that he sticks out of nature with a towering majesty, and yet he goes back into the ground a few feet in order to blindly and dumbly rot and disappear forever. It is a terrifying dilemma to be in and to have to live with. So that was required reading for me. And uh, Joseph Becker's fundamental premise in the whole of the book is that there is no higher ideal than human thought, So people cannot and therefore do not live with the dilemma of at once living majestically only to die pathetically. It's it's a nihilistic view of life. There really isn't any meaning except the meaning that you make for yourself. So in in reaction to this grim reality, people instead ignore death for as long as they're able. It means they deny death until they no longer can, hence the title's book, The Denial of Death. And while denying death... People really need to do two things, according to Becker. Number one, they should strive to maximize personal gain. They should accumulate degrees. They should chase wealth. They should try to become famous. They should accumulate power. They should have gravitas, as the ancient Romans described, the worth of a man. The measure of people is what you have and what you develop yourself. <clears throat> Secondly, people who, who embrace this theology, if you will, should seek to avoid pain at all costs. What good is pain? A person should run from trials and he- tribulations. Run away from them. Do your best to get out of them in any way, shape, and form instead of seeking any sense or purpose in, or, or meaning in a trial, right? Meaning is, is found in the development of the self, so the self must be the focus of provision and pr- protection. Well, Ideas, philosophies produce life choices. People make choices based on what they truly believe at the core of their being. And uh, a Becker disciple would gravitate to selfishness, and that's where I was coming out of college, honestly. Go get what I can get. And, uh, you know, it leads to a certain arrogance, and uh, it leads to a desire to control absolutely everything. And uh, we're going to see in the Scripture this morning that that thinking, that attitude, that approach, that framework is the exact opposite of how God wants us to view trials as a Christian. This uh, last year and a half has been a rough go for the world, and it's, you know, to the, for the United States, for Alaska, for Anchorage, for our church and our school. We didn't see COVID coming. We didn't. You know, but it's really made denying death a near impossibility, has it not? I mean, the, just the... The government institutions and the media have made sickness and death an obsession. That's all you hear about, and uh, now we're back in it, you know, kind of uh, chapter two, I suppose. It's it's hot and heavy, and at the center of all discussion going on right now. Well, it's a trial, and you know the the pandemic conversation is forcing people to face the reality of their own impending death whether they want to or not. And so what comes out is people's philosophical and doctrinal beliefs about how the world works, how the world works. Why do these things happen? And so in this testing time, we're seeing strong immers- emotions, right? Um, we're seeing all kinds of ideas and varying doctrines about why we're here and what happens to us when, I die, when we die. And then uh, we're seeing wildly opposing coping means or attitudes about suffering and and about the idea of physical death. If it's reasonable to group people into broad categories regarding the question of death, I have observed that there are essentially two. There are those who are very afraid to die, whether they'll admit it or not, but at the core of their their soul, they're terrified of dying. I was like that coming out of college because I believe Joseph Becker. Um, And then there are those that are less so or not at all. And so it's a mystery when you meet somebody, when you're fearful of death, and then you meet somebody that's got a different framework and isn't terrified of dying. It's a little what's going on with that person, right? Fear is a huge motivator and root determiner when we don't have Of faith to hold on to or to stand as a firm foundation upon. And so I see the division of people who are fearful about death versus not fearful about death as really binary, and I'm coming to love that term more and more the more I grow in the knowledge of God. God is clear. He's crystal clear about where we stand with Him and about how He wants us to live. And Christians need not be fearful. That's what we're going to talk about More need not be fearful, even in the most terrifying uh, temporal circumstances. So I would assert that people who agree with Professor Becker are saturated with fear, even debilitating fear, um, and fear-based choices emerge from that kind of fear. Some people are so afraid of, of dying that they choose to really not live anymore, at least in the manner of living that is fulfilling and rich and is A good God over the universe invites us to partake in, even though it's fallen. Um, The book of Ecclesiastes is about living in a fallen world, and there are good gifts that God gives us as we navigate life in a fallen world. But our Bible is telling us today, the text from James chapter 1 is just profoundly giving us a radical alternative to how the world thinks about trials. Why trials happen and why we suffer And here it is, it's that God intends trials to test us and to refine us. And in both of those goals, he is allowing suffering for our good, for our good. The pain is refining us and bringing us to a better place. So we have to agree with God in faith that his goals for our suffering are good. That's a leap when you're in the middle of something, is it not? It's hard to do. It's hard to do. It takes faith, folks, real, varsity-level faith, and that's what we're going to go deeper into. If we agree with God that His goals for us are good, the specific text we're going to go through in verses 2 through 4, what that's going to give us is the how-to. It's the means, if you will, to persevere as we agree with God that this trial is not random or unfair or not... Deserving, you know, or, or persecutorial, or whatever the, you know, adjective you want to use. When we agree that God is sovereign over it and He's allowing it in our lives and He's providential in it, we have the tools to how to, but we have to agree with that first. So it gives us the means to endure trials. I want to show you that uh, we have volitional choices to make when trial comes and we have to exercise our will. But when we do, when we make these right choices, there's there's really three of them that pop out in the text. Number one, choose joy. Choose joy. Choose joy. Number two, choose to see and understand a bigger picture. We used to say in the fighter pilot world in my previous lives, the large mosaic. I don't know why we'd do that, but anyway, it was a cool way to say the big picture. You want to step back and see the big picture. And then lastly, number three, you want to choose a submissive posture. Choose to be submissive. So these are the means to persevere in suffering. And you should understand that as, as you choose these three means when you face trials, this is the, this is the, the mechanism. This is the uh, gas in the engine. This is how God is now enabled to work out refining work in you, in your suffering. And what's he trying to do? He's trying to make you more like Christ trying to make you more like Christ. So what is a trial? What is, it, what, what is a trial? The Greek word used here in verse 2 is peripto, which suggests an unwanted or unwelcome experience that generally comes unexpectedly. So I'm unexpectedly preaching this morning. It was a trial at about midday on Friday. But here I am. So, uh, you know, these things just come out of nowhere, Right? And James is referring to trouble that just is going to come as we live in a fallen world. The natural result of sinful human nature and a world and society cursed by God in the garden that's corrupted with all kinds of iniquity. That's what we live in. As John MacArthur says, the ship is going down in the world we live in. Unless you wonder, God's elect, that God's elect are not exempt from such trouble. And there will be, you know, we're not exempt. And there, there will be trouble even in the very best of things that God blesses us with, right? There's trouble in marriage. There's trouble in family life. There's trouble in our careers. There's trouble in our church. There's trouble. And we know that we cannot escape criticism, frustration, disappointment, physical pain, emotional pain, disease, injury, and eventually death. There is no such thing as a safe space, There is no such thing. Jesus himself said in John 16, 33, in the world, you will have tribulation. You will have it. And if that's not enough, hear this. For Christians, there's even more trouble to be expected than for an unbeliever. Uh, That's not good news. But (laughs) John 15, 20, Christians expect trouble because of our faith. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, Jesus said. So we get a double whammy, so to say. And then we read in verse 2 of our text that there is an absolute inevitability to experiencing trials. When you meet trials of various kinds, it says. It's not an if, but a, but a when. It's not an if, it's when. So if things are going great for you right now, I don't, you, know, you don't want to worry about the future, but we have to understand Life is a journey, and it's going to be ups and downs, and trials will come. And we're going to talk about why they come. So as we sit here today, why should we listen to James? You know, why should we take what James says to heart? Well, the first reason is because it's inspired Scripture, and it's God speaking to us, and it's God's truth. And we have to hold on to that, and we have to accept that by faith. We believe that here. The Bible is inerrant, infallible. It's inspired. It's sufficient. For life and doctrine, it has the authority we need to live our lives, period. So we have to pay attention to James. But it's also important to look at what was going on back 2,000 years ago, and who was James writing to? What was happening culturally and politically when James penned this letter all that time ago? Well, this New Testament epistle was written to Jewish Christians who were suffering extreme persecution under something called the dispersion under Herod Agrippa. The first verse of the chapter, the greeting, mentions dispersion. So it's Jewish converted believers who are now Christians, who are living the Christian life, and the heat's coming. They're getting persecuted. Herod Agrippa was a uh, product of big-time sweeping political change within the Roman Empire that actually began when uh, Emperor Tiberius Caesar Augustus died in 37 AD. And he was succeeded by his great nephew Gaius, now known to history by his childhood nickname Caligula. Caligula kind of gives you chills because we know a little bit about him and they've made movies about Caligula. Not a good guy. At first his, his reign was rich with promise and he was young and energetic and popular, but... He got really full of himself like people do when they get to be in positions of high authority, and he quickly turned out to be an evil madman, and he was obsessed with a vision of himself as a living God. He wanted people to see him as as a living God, as the heir of Julius Caesar and Augustus, both of whom were deified in death. If you re- remember your Roman history, um, Jesus, uh, Julius Caesar and then his nephew um, Augustus, who was Caesar Augustus named himself Caesar Augustus, both of those men were deified by the Romans in their death. And Caligula declared himself a god during life, and he demanded that he be worshipped alongside the other gods in the Roman Empire. So that was a that was a new twist to things. So though his reign turned out to be short, they killed him. His Praetorian Guard, his own uh, guardsmen who were supposed to keep him safe, turned on him. And uh, and murdered him in 41 AD, but his his ideas had a long term fallout. You know, it's a domino effect. When you get a really bad leader, and a society is impacted by that leader, you just start to see things spiraling downward. So that's what happened. And uh, prior to Caligula, Rome had been really tolerant of of other religions, and this meant that you know the people groups under Roman control they could worship you know pretty freely. Whoever and, and, and uh, however they wanted, as long as they just paid uh, homage to the Roman Empire and did not defy the imperial cult, well, this policy of of tolerance had a had a an effect that created sort of a peaceful period in Roman history. Um, but Caligula came in and and sort of turned things on its head and. So his, his idea of you got to worship me as a god was, was considered just an egregious violation of longstanding policy, and it really inflamed people throughout the empire, and as you can imagine, it inflamed the people who were living in Judea at the time, the, the Jewish nation. So Caligula took it too far. Uh, he even uh, started to erect statues of himself around Jerusalem. So we have tension happening here. Here comes Herod Agrippa, who was appointed by Caligula. Uh, Herod Agrippa was a grandson of Herod the Great. If you were here for uh, Jeff's preaching on Matthew, he gave us some great history there and the idea of a tetrarch that ruled a divided kingdom into three sections. So here we have turmoil happening. Here is Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, and uh, so two years later... Um, basically Caligula gave, um, gave Herod Agrippa land, and uh, he ended up giving him all the land that was under the Tetrarch. So we're back to the future. So Herod Agrippa is now ruling as Herod the Great did, if if you can think of it that way. Herod Agrippa was raised in Rome, and so he was astute. He, he had a consciousness of Judaism in the territory, and so his game plan when he went back in was to basically support the religious leaders in and around Jerusalem. He, underst- he understood, the, uh, he understood um, working with the locals, as it were. And so um, he basically went in to try to gain favor with the Jewish authorities who were in power. Now, these are not believing Jewish authorities. This is the Jews that rejected Christ. And so he's working with them. And they ha- now have a, uh, a problem, though, and uh, it's the rise of Christianity. In particular, uh, converted Jews. And so here we go. The Roman ruler just started a major attack against Jewish Christians who were threatening to upend the traditional Jewish power base. So Jewish Christians converted believers who were of the Jewish race and heritage They're following Christ, and the government's coming after them, coming after them hard. So James is writing to these persecuted ones, and he's writing with a certain directness because things were rough, things were hard. Dispersion means you're scattered, you're just sent, running, away. And so they needed to hear a hard truth, and James is giving them a hard truth. The the whole of the letter, we're on just uh, a few verses this morning, but the whole of the letter just gives a practical but very seriously laid out what not to do. And then it follows with a very good, straightforward, and comprehensive what to do, list of attitudes and actions in order to grow and serve as a strong witness for truth. So God was allowing this persecution but he, was allowing, but he was desiring for them to grow and to be a witness for his truth, the truth of his word. And this was coming at a time under crushing pressure from governing authorities. So you could say that the book of James is a persecution playbook. I think we probably need a persecution playbook right now, right? We, we need to know what the Bible has to say when we're going to face persecution because it's not an if but a when. Jeff has been referencing the churches in Canada and how hard the government has come down on some of those in our neighboring country Canada. So, I don't know. I'm not, you know, discouraged or worried. Um, I'm just aware. And so having a persecution playbook is is something that we should go fantastic. We should know what's in it. And really it basically if you gave it a pithy title it would be Don't Blame God do obey His Word. That's what James is basically saying. Do not blame God for bad things happening to you. Obey in this circumstance. <clears throat> well, what are we to do with James's commands found in the text today? It's so relevant. It's so relevant. The world is saying, avoid suffering at all costs. The Joseph Beckers have had their say. And the world is saying, stay home, lock down, don't fly, don't fight, find a safe space. If you're stressed, somebody's wrong and they need to be held accountable for that. But James is saying in the text that Christians are to see good, good purposes and meaning in trials. He's saying trials are necessary and that they're productive, that they're essential for believers, they're essential for us to grow, to become more like Christ. So how do we do this? How do we do this? What are the means? What's the how-to? All right. I'm going to start with the first one that I gave you earlier in the outline. Verse 2 tells us the first means is to choose joy. We're to choose a joyful attitude. Where to choose that, a joyful attitude. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Stop there. That's pretty radical, is it not? Joy and suffering? Now, I'm, not, I'm not saying that this is a, a flippant sort of uh, counseling room. Your life is falling apart. Choose joy. That, that's what I'm saying is here. There is a very real reality of suffering that we have the opportunity to make a heart choice in faith to choose joy, to choose joy. Notice how the language is commanding and not suggesting. This verse is emphatically stating that believers are to expect trials, which means that any energy to avoiding trials is a waste of time. You know, it's been said that, you know, you you run from some trial, you're just going to find it more and bigger, the same one at the next place you try to go. So not expending energy on avoiding trials, expecting trials, and then we're commanded to see all trials as a reason for a joyous response. What is going on here? Count all joy is given as a divine imperative in the Greek uh, language. In the original Greek, it's a, you will do this. It's an imperative, and the joy is commanded to be all joy, which means pure, unmixed, complete, and total joy. How do we do this? How do we really realistically do this? Well, it's a choice of of, of the will, and it's actually faith in action. And this is, you know, as I preach this, this is where where many in, in our culture, and maybe some of you here this morning, who are in the throes of unimaginably deep pain, and I would never judge you for what's happening. This is where you're probably tempted to give the eye roll, the, what is he talking about? Really? Pastor, I just lost, you fill in the blank, and you are telling me God wants me to be joyful? well, that's exactly what I'm telling you. That's exactly what I'm telling you. It's because joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness gets confused with joy in the way we think, but happiness is, etern- it, happiness is, is external. It's fleeting. And happiness is really only achievable on earth. Joy, on the other hand, is something much deeper, it's internal, it's selfless, it's sacrificial, it's attributable to God and God alone, and it's only possible through a spiritual connection with God. You can't tell an unbeliever to choose joy. You can tell a believer to choose joy. Do you see that? And it's because we have a relationship with God and because we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. So I'm saying that you can be at like world record levels of unhappiness based on circumstances happening in your life, but you can still choose to be joyful if you're a believer because you're sealed with the Spirit and you're indwelled with the Spirit. And because you're indwelled with the Spirit, you have the power to choose joy. And we have to believe that. We have to believe that. And then we have to encourage one another to believe that, and then we build each other up by saying, here's the truth, here's the truth, and I'm with you in this, right? That's the body of Christ, so when I was really young in the faith, I you know, brand new Christian, a really good friend of mine who was also discipling me, he was much younger than me, but he was a, a you know, mature Christian, and uh, a tragedy occurred in his personal life. Uh, his His sister was seriously injured in a car accident, and she was in a coma, and it was really touch and go regarding this head injury, and so how was she going to come out of it? Would she have, you know traumatic brain injury that would be debilitating for the rest of her life. And, and I'm, I'm watching this as I'm being discipled by this man, and I'm just, I'm just confused, quite honestly. You know, because my friend was, though hurting and grieving, he was calm. He was calm, and he was mature, and he was m- secure, and he was deliberate. And he was actually witnessing to me in this moment he was even confident looking ahead, and I started to wonder, do you even really love your sister? Because I, was, I don't have that in me. What you're doing, I don't have yet. And so here he was just living out James 1, and I, I was dumbfounded. But you know what? He was witnessing to me, and I'm witnessing to you today that he witnessed to me. That's how the body of Christ works. That's how God works. God never wastes anything. He never wastes anything. So your suffering is an opportunity for him to reach somebody else, and you don't know how he's doing that. Please hear that. Our God is incredibly efficient and incredibly good, and he never wastes anything. So if God is going to command us to choose joy, and we have the Holy Spirit in us, we can do it. We don't do it on our own strength, but we do it on dependence on his power, on his power. Under the Holy Spirit's provision, every true Christian can make the choice to choose joy. And I saw my friend doing it, and uh, I've learned a little bit by a little bit by a little bit over the years to do it better and more myself. One writer said it this way, The more we choose rejoicing in trials, the more we realize that they are not liabilities but privileges. Not liabilities but privileges. Ultimately beneficial and not harmful, no matter how destructive and painful the immediate experience of them might appear. Wow, that is radical. That is radical. But as we choose to believe radical, we can see and discover and experience that the greatest part of the joy in drawing close to the Lord is more of the Lord. When we draw close to Him, we experience Him more and more. The Lord is the source of all joy, and when we run to Him and we see Him as He is, good and loving and gracious and intentional in our pain, we get to experience Him all the more. All right, so if we're able to choose joy, varsity-level choice, when God-ordained trials come, our second means of rightly responding to suffering is we choose to see the bigger picture. We step back and we say, what are you doing, Lord? What are you doing for me, and what are you doing for those I have impact on my life? And we have to do this with an understanding mind, an understanding mind. Look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Gnosko is the Greek Greek verb that James uses in verse 3, and this word carries the idea of full understanding of something that is beyond mere factual assent. Basically what he's saying is, it's not just acknowledging it, it's you know that you know, because you've personally experienced it, right? Right? When we know something because we've lived through it, we know that we know it, right? So the idea here is it's describing a knowledge that comes from surviving something, a personal experience. As Christians, we come to know important and lasting things about trials the way, by the way we handle them, right? From experience. The longer we walk with the Lord, the more we see that our experience matches God's Word and His promises. That's my testimony 30 years later from the story I told you earlier. And when God's Word tells us our testing and trials produces some very good things, we have to believe Him, and not the least of which of those good things is endurance. Endurance. John MacArthur, in his commentary on this, was greatly helpful to me. Um, and uh, he picks up on uh, something called what he calls Common Observations of Christians and suffering. So, things that just seem obvious to Christians, even if uh, unbelieving onlookers don't get it. As believers, we can look at someone suffering, and we can see these and they're common observations. So, he gives us a good list, and it really is the essence of an understanding mind. So, uh, if you're taking notes, um, I'm just going to tick through a few of them. All right, starting with uh, number one, trials test the strength of our faith. Trials test... The strength of our faith. A person who becomes fearful, resentful, bitter, or self-pitying when trouble comes is exposing a weak faith. So if I see myself doing that, I'm exposing weak faith in myself. We don't want to judge anyone, we don't want to judge others, but we do need to be honest to ourselves, right? Alternatively, a person who turns to the Lord increasingly and and, and shows a, a growing and therefore strong, developing faith, right? Sanctification is a promise from God when we're saved. He, he justifies us by faith. It's not a work of our own. It's by grace alone. It's faith in Christ alone. And at that moment, we're indwelled with the Spirit. It's a promise in the new covenant. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And then he begins this process of making us more like Christ. It's a lifetime of ups and downs and circumstances and ways to grow more like Jesus, okay? And so the person that is embracing their sanctification is showing strong faith, as opposed to somebody who's fighting back and calling it unfair or is angry about something. Number two, trials test our humility and our trust in the Lord. Trials are given to humble us, and we need humbling time to time, I would assert. Uh, They remind us to not let our trust in the Lord ever turn to presumption and spiritual satisfaction. Trials counter pride, and God hates pride, Um, and so when we get prideful, and we do because we have a sin nature, um, sometimes he'll, He'll humble us. Trials test our dependence on the world. We can fall in love with the world pretty easily, especially in the United States. We've had it great. We've had it great. We have it great. And uh, we can fall in love with that. God allows trials to wean us away from our dependence on worldly things, our possessions, the things that draw us away from Him. and we start to love our boat more than we love God, then the problem is developing. And, you know, I'm, I'm just, we're all, we're all honest here. We get drawn into the world, do we not? The accumulation of worldly possessions, knowledge, and rewards, it can tempt us to forget we are citizens of heaven, that this is not our home. We have to hold on to that. This is not our home. Right? Trials test our source of hope. Trials call us to eternal and heavenly hope, not hope in men. I've said over and over in my family for years and years and years, there is no hope in men. So, you know, I've been in the Air Force. I've been high enough ranking. I've, I've seen men do amazing things, amazing things. And I've served in state government. And look, the best of the best of the very best of the best aren't going to get it done. They can't run the universe. There is no hope in men. And so trials test what we really believe that we need to hope in. And when we hope in government and not God, we're we're going to be disappointed. Guarantee it. All right, next one. Trials test our loyalties. God tests what we really love. So the great story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac or or bringing him to the altar as God asked him to do, this is a proof of his faith, and he was counted righteous for it. He's in the Hebrews chapter 11 Faith Hall of Fame because by faith he believed. And so he made an incredibly terrifying choice, if you will, a choice that today's culture would judge as, you know, criminal But he believed God, and God worked it out perfectly. And so, you know, where are our loyalties? What are you prepared to sacrifice for God? Trials test what we value. Trials are given to teach us to value God's blessings. Through trials, a genuine faith tells us the value of spiritual things that are of God as compared to temporal things that aren't of God. And he blesses us mightily and in abundance, and when we care to look, we can be overwhelmed by how good he is to us, even when we're suffering or struggling financially or with our health or in relationship. God is still good. He's on his throne. He wants us saved. He wants us to come to him by faith, and he wants to make us like Christ and allow us to be glorified when we die and live with him forever. What a promise. What an amazingly good God. But trials do test what we value. Trials test our ability to grow as well. Are we stuck? Are we stuck somewhere? Are we willing to say yes to God and grow through a difficulty? And when we grow through difficulties, God is making us more useful to his kingdom. We don't know how he's going to use us in our witness and our testimony. And so sometimes we just got to say, all right, I don't know what you're doing here, Lord, but I'm going to be faithful and and he's going to use that. He's going to use that to bring others to Christ. Trials test our willingness to help others. So when we've been in a trial or we're in a trial or we've been through a trial, are we not better able to minister to others that are going through the same thing? It's a beautiful part of the church. And so when um, when tragedies happen, when we have, you know, lost loved ones, when, you know, Pick pick the many disasters that can happen when, guarantee, somebody who's been through that, a believer, a fellow believer in the church has been through that, and when they sit with you and love you and walk you through that, it's an amazing way for God to minister to you, right? And so trials test our willingness to, to do that, and it can be amazingly encouraging. And so the summary result of a Christian passing all these tests is steadfastness. It's perseverance, steadfastness is a quality earned in passing the t- these, these trials and tests that God brings for his uh, good purposes into our life, right? And so, you know, we all want the seasoned, seasoned quarterback to go in, right? When the game is on the line, we want the, we want the pro, the real pro. We want the battle-scarred sergeant to lead you up the hill to take that hill when it looks really grim. We want the guy that's been there before you know, we want the doctor who has got a lot of surgeries under his or her belt to do the surgery, right? So this idea that we don't want to go through difficulty because it's hard and it's, we're not supposed to, we need to avoid it's crazy. Character development is like muscle development, no pain, no gain. So we should see it that way. It's just good common sense, actually, when you step away from it. So endurance is another word that works here to describe a permanent inner quality of strength which increases each time a trial is patiently and trustingly endured. There's a cumulative effect as you go through life. You become stronger and stronger and stronger, and that's the whole point. And so your witness when you're a baby Christian is going to be different than when you're a more mature Christian. At least if you're a true believer, God's going to work you through things, and so he's going to use you more as a more mature Christian. So there's this, there's warnings here though, for people that that maybe think they're a Christian and they're not. You know the Christmas and Easter types, which is what I was, which is what I was. So I told you about being a product of uh, you know a reputable university, and and then going into and then I went into the Air Force and I did did hard things and I was flying jets and I you know I kind of thought I was a believer because that's what you do and you're a good person and. You know, but I wasn't. I wasn't. I did not have saving faith. And so um, a trial came, and that trial was getting deployed. <laughs> and so uh, not to go deep into it, but I went off to Operation Desert Shield um, as, as a, an unbeliever, and God saved me while I was there. Because when I got there, I had flown my whole career, and, and then I changed jobs, and I went into a, a shorter Assignment with the Army, and I went deployed down with the Army. And while my buddies were all flying jets, I was on the ground and felt unprepared. And this was a big trial, it was a big trial for me. And so, I didn't really have a good framework to process all of that. And what I did see, though, is some wonderful, believing men around me who had a quality that I wanted. And I was like, What is with you? How are you seeing this? in the way that I'm not. And so I was very attracted to that. And so God in his grace gave me a life calculus moment at that particular time in my life. Back in 1990, I had to face my own death. You know, I, I had really very confident as a pilot, I, you know, I'm good. I'm not going to ever crash because I'm good at this. I'm good. I'm in control. But now I'm not in control. And I'm driving a Humvee when I thought I should be flying a jet. And so here I am, and there's people trying to kill me, and so I didn't know if I was going to come back. And believe me, the media hype in, in that time when people were talking about fighting Saddam Hussein, that's a long time ago now, 30 years, was, was as much as the COVID hype. I mean, it was like the world is coming to an end. This is World War III, it's nuclear weapons, and all those men deploying, all those women deploying, they're not coming back. And so without a framework of faith, I, I didn't know. So I had to grow up fast, really, really fast. Well, what God did for me was save me in that. He saved me in that by his grace and grace alone. And, and I'm just so grateful for that because it's been 30 years and I, I don't look back. So my initial inability to rightly cope in my first real major league trial where I had to contemplate my own death, God, in his grace, put men around me, gave me the truth, and I believed, I believed, I believed. And I, I'm so grateful for that. So it's nothing I did. The point I want to make is that God uses trials, and he used a trial in my life to bring me to the truth, and I'm grateful for that. All right, so um, let's turn now to our, our third means to achieving triumphant perseverance, which is submission. Submission, we're, to, we're supposed to submit our will to God in trust, and we're supposed to have submissive, submissive will in our suffering, Look at verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. All right, so trials come, we react, we get to choose, but they're long sometimes. (laughs) They can be really long, right? And so it's been said that the only way out of a trial is through it. So steadfastness to have its full effect, we have to keep choosing to trust in a submissive posture. It's an ongoing action. It's not a one-time I'm good. <laughs> because we all know that we're in trials, we have ups and downs, right? On a, you know, Saturday afternoon, we can say, Whew, "I got this all figured out." And then, you know, Sunday morning, there's news or there's something's changed and down the pit we go, right? So what 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 James is trying to say here is Realize that's part of it, that it's going to be an up-and-down deal and you have to continue to choose. It's not just a one-time choice. Continue till you're at the end. It's an ongoing decision. We have to stay on track. So our trust isn't a function of our circumstances. It's a function of our faith and we just persevere to the end. So we have to choose determination. Um, Probably the... The illustration of this that I love the most is the uh, um, wonderful British exhortation that was coined during the German Blitz of London during World War II. The Blitz was when the Luftwaffe, Goering's uh, bombers were crossing the English channel multiple times a day, you know, day after day, week after week, and they were just bombing civilians in London, it was called the Blitz. And uh, it was a terrible time and a lot of destruction and a lot of lost lives. But in this tragic, probably seemingly ending travail that these people found themselves in, they coined an amazing, amazing saying, and it was, keep calm and carry on. Keep calm and carry on. And they said that to one another, and it was a, it was an encouragement. And so, as Christians, we can say, read James 1, keep calm and carry on. Choosing set, steadfastness was the essence of that motto, and so... The Lord in our trials, He doesn't tell us when the end is coming, when it's over. There are no bypasses, no shortcuts, uh, but He's sovereignly over it. But just think about this, you know, a, a marathon has to be 26 miles to get the medal, right? If you run 13, you haven't run the marathon. You've got to run all the way. Climbing Everest means climbing Everest. You have to summit, not just get to base camp and go... I'm at Everest, and so I can count myself as one of the ones that did it. Here's the thing you need to hear. So our good and loving God, in our trials, he promises that he will always see us through it, no matter how severe. And he promises that we won't come to spiritual harm. Spiritual harm. Our relationship with him will be strengthened, will grow, will be stronger in our faith we won't be spiritually harmed, right? What's different, though, is, you know, we might be physically harmed, we might be financially harmed, we might be relationally harmed, we might be, you know, lose our freedom, we might have emotional harm, but it's never, it's never spiritual harm. It's never spiritual harm. It's always spiritual gain if we believe. But he can't do his perfect and complete work in us unless we're willing to believe that and be submissive. All right. When we're willing participants and we're humbly submitting to God, he promises to do what in the verse? What's the next thing? He says, make us perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. what What does James mean by perfect here? Well, he's not saying that we're going to be morally or spiritually perfect or sinless. What he's saying is, using the Greek word teleos, that we're going to be fully developed. There's a maturity idea here. That's what that's what perfection is. I'm making you more like Christ. I'm maturing you. Okay? That's the idea of being made perfect. The English word mature is a really good good way of thinking about what James is talking about here. So Perfect is spiritual maturity that comes manifest in ever greater Christ-likeness. And so God's perfect. He owns the standard of perfection. And so what he's promising to us here is that when we choose joy, when we choose to persevere, when we choose to submit, he's promising that he's moving us to his standard of perfection, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Fully God, fully man, lived in this world and demonstrated what a perfect human is. That's what God's moving us to, is that perfection, and He has a lifetime to do it for us. We're never going to achieve full Christ-likeness in this life because we have to battle our sin nature. Galatians 5 talks about that, and it's going to be a fight to the bitter end. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil up against us, and we are not going to be perfect, but if we persevere, we're going to be made more perfect, especially in trials especially in trials. So complete uh, translates from the Greek to mean being whole or entire. So think of a, a three-dimensional picture. So this Bible, you know, you can do two dimensions, but there's three dimensions to it, and it's whole and complete. So that's the idea there is a, a three-dimensional completeness. And the idea here is that the end of a trial, which, which will have a trajectory, all trials do, there, there will be a beginning, there will be a middle, and there will be an end to it. There will be an end to it. So the idea here is spiritual maturity, completeness, not lacking in anything of spiritual importance and value, as one commentator said it. 1 Peter 5.10 restates this elegantly. It says it this way. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen and establish you well as we get to the end here lest you wonder that this teaching is a new testament thing only just listen to what david penned in psalm 37 i'll read you verses 7 through 11 david was struggling with um the injustice of the wicked you know kind of um having it well and and it it was difficult for him, so he penned this, and he said, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. It's just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land, and delight themselves in abundant peace. We have to submit to God in our trials and s- submit in an ongoing way all the way through it, and He's going to make us more like Christ. You can bank on that. So as I wrap up, I, I just want to say that I have dear ones in my life who who aren't believers. Um, and uh I pray for them daily, and they they have a different you know, sort of world view than i do and uh it's hard it, it, because I love them and I want them you know to be saved i want to share my faith with them and i i endeavor to do that but um i you know my prayers are for them, and uh um you know we we want to think that way as as we're Considering the trials we're in. We're considering what's happening in our country right now. We're considering how people are reacting. Everybody who is, um, you know, maybe ready to persecute you is in need of God, is in need of saving faith. And I wish, you know, an eternal separation from God on no one. And so as we consider all this... Um, We can't do the siege, you know, mentality. We just kind of come in behind the fort and get mad at everyone on the outside and say, we Christians, we're just going to suffer all the way to the end and do it. and, And, you know, we don't care about the world. That's not what God says we're supposed to do. What we're supposed to do is be like those men that were around me when I went to Desert Storm. When I was that unbelieving person, they reached out to me and loved me and prayed with me. And I wanted to know more about Jesus because of them. So every person in here, in our trials, or even if it's going well, we have an opportunity. And right now, there are a lot of people that need to hear the gospel. So Joseph Becker was right in one sense. When a person dies apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ alone, it is an unspeakable tragedy. So we want to witness with our lives. This is our mission. This is what God expects. All right? And so I'll just close with... uh, a man that's been greatly blessing me in his trial. Um, I mentioned uh, Russ Edwards' first service, and I'll, I'll bring him up again because uh, Russ has had a tough trial. Uh, blood cancer, um, up and down, he got COVID, uh, they had to be in Seattle, there was um, lots and lots of delays in him getting the treatment he needed, which was a... Uh, Blood marrow, uh, bone marrow transplant. And so the the story has been daily up and down and up and down. But the beautiful thing about Russ is um, in all of that, in all of his own weakness, and he would never brag about this, but what he has done for me is demonstrate James 1. And I love him for that. I love him for that. He has basically lived out what he said he believes. And that means something. So I, I don't want to put Russ on a, up on a pedestal but, um, because there's lots of people in here, I'm sure, today who are, who are grappling with things that are equally difficult or more and you are walking in faith and you are a blessing to others. So that's what the church should be about. We have to choose a joyful attitude. Many of you are choosing a joyful attitude today in whatever suffering you're going through. We have to choose to have an understanding mind. Many of you are doing that. We have to choose to have a posture of submission. Many of you are doing that, and uh, it's a beautiful thing to witness, and God is pleased by it. Praise God for you. Praise God for his gospel. Praise God for our church and what we have together in faith. We have hope. We have the only hope there is.